0: Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI Communications, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hello, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Maria, I am so excited to have a conversation with you. You and I have been on in a couple of trainings together. You helped me out and put together uh, a YouTube video that talks about how not to be performative during... um, Hispanic Heritage Month, we're going to talk about the term Latin, Latinx, etc. <laughs> so that's why I hesitated and stuff. So I, I'm i so fascinated by your background, and I really enjoy our conversations. And I know that you're going to be, bring a very unique angle to this conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, communications, and inclusive language as it relates to policies. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. So please introduce yourself, and we'll get into it.
1: Thanks. My name is Maria Gamboa. I'm a consultant and my prior life was as an academic trained as a historian and so that's what I that's what I did. I studied the history of a lot of policies to understand them. Uh, Yeah and I think what I do too is help improve programs and understand the purpose of programs and how they're written and who they're actually um, for and if they're achieving their goals. So mm. now we do, yeah. Now we do, um, now I do strategy consulting for nonprofits and foundations and um, a lot in healthcare and education. Um, but, you know, that's my day job. And so I'm always asking hard questions about programs, um, what their goal is, and also resistance to implementation because that's one of the things, right? That um, it's one thing to write something down. It's another thing to implement it and enforce it and fund it. So those are some mm. of the questions. How does it work in practice?
0: Well, you have your PhD, <laughs> which is so impressive. Uh, and I would like to learn about what got you to do the, the topic that you did on your dissertation. And what were some of the key things that kind of that were takeaways for you <laughs> that kind of surprised you within the work that you now do in your consulting?
1: Yeah. So my um, research was actually on the history of comprehensive immigration reform. So the 1986 Act that many remember as an amnesty, but which actually started as an employer sanctions bill. Mm. So um, how did that happen? I I study that and I study how Latinos were being recognized as a domestic minority group that needed protection um, and resources. Uh, at the same time that undocumented immigration was growing. And so um, the problems that that created for these advocacy groups that were trying to increase protections uh, for Latinos in education and employment and voting and housing, uh, you know, all the areas where it shows up. And people were um, testing the limits of that inclusion back then in the 60s and 70s, 70s especially, to see if it included immigrants. And sometimes, people hadn't thought that it could include immigrants or that immigrants would ever access rights and resources and so once that started happening they started to write exclusions uh, to make sure that immigrants did not were not included and so now we're in a moment where states are rewriting policies to be inclusionary or exclusionary and that's important when we talk about inclusion just because uh, inclusion makes some people very uncomfortable and uh, because it requires a shift in mindset. And sometimes people think, have very definitions just of what it means. Some people think it means inclusion at the bottom (laughs) and that that, people will be satisfied with that. Um, And other people think it means inclusion at all levels, even at the top, even in leadership. So that's some of what I examined. And for example, just real quick, um, this is when they were debating if undocumented kids should have the right to go to public school. Mm. And when it went to the Supreme Court, the justices were asking, okay, what are the implications if, if undocumented kids are given the right to go to public school? Do they get to go to college too? What if they ever want to go to college? And the lawyers for the kids were saying, well, we're not talking about college. We That's not, not included. We're only talking about key through 12. So even then there are limits on how much inclusion we're talking about. And so that's always something to keep in mind.
0: You had mentioned inclusion can be uncomfortable. And, you know, if we were just to like look at that sentence, it, it seems like inclusion would be uncomfortable. Doesn't everyone want inclusion? However, the work that you do in looking at pro- programs, poli- policies specifically, because policies are, where the institutionalization of racism, sexism, sexism homophobia, etc. exists. But it's what we talk about here is language leads to behavior. So there is intentional language written into these policies, to your point, that is exclusionary. However, on the surface, we may not necessarily see it. Um, we may not notice it. Are there some common phrases or some examples that you can share where you've come across language that actually seems like it's a a good thing, a positive thing, but actually it's quite exclusionary in practice?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of examples from the present and the past. So sometimes um, it's the groups omitted. So sometimes when you have a policy, it'll say things like, "For," and I'm thinking like the Na- National Labor Relations Act, for example, that included new protections for workers, right? The fine print said this excluded farm workers and domestic workers, which were racialized categories. So sometimes the fine print's like this, this policy is for everyone except this group, which is a group that is not called, you know, you're not saying black and Latino, but you're saying, um, by some other name. And so I'm just thinking Mm. so many examples. Um, another example in history is just, are you able to enforce the thing? So things that sound good, but so I had written down like the GI bill, you know, which had given people the opportunity to go to college and buy a home, but the reality was like segregated schools, segregated neighborhoods. And so how do you enforce it? Um, but when you talk about language, Um, I think there's some of the things are ignoring present inequities. So I could see policies where um, voting rights, for example, there's bills right now to say that we don't need protections anymore for voting, uh, you know, for voting because we've reached equality or parity. (laughs) And so it means getting rid of, kind of oversight to ensure that the process is being carried out in a way that people have access to voting. But if you think historically, right, in 1965, when um, the Voting Rights Act passed, you know, just because you were given something doesn't mean you can do it. So now I think there's bills to require ID or to make it harder to vote by mail. Um, Even things like in reproductive health care, which we do a lot of work, sometimes the groups most affected by policies are not named right so with a uh, um, restrictions on abortion for example they don't say the groups most likely to be affected by it um, but so what I'm saying is just that it's a lack of acknowledgement of present inequities that mean policies are going to impact certain groups more heavily right or more negatively student loans um, if you look at the data of like who takes out loans who has the highest debt burden oftentimes you'll see it's it's historically excluded groups, groups that don't have the safety net and wealth to pay for their own education and things like that. So I'm thinking legislatively, um, but there's a lot of ways in which things are written in a way that seems neutral or just um, general and that makes the argument is that it's the idea is that it won't impact groups differently, but I think the hidden subtext or context of like the history of this country is what would explain why it would have a disparate impact. And so part of the thing is then what's the impact versus intent? Just because you didn't mean for it to have an impact on certain groups or you wrote it in a way that it's not calling that out, um, doesn't mean it won't. And I think that's part of the, the resistance against critical race theory, for people to know what actually happened and why um, policies reinforce inequities, even if they're not naming groups by name,
0: I mean, it's a really important point and how it's baked into policies and systems and infrastructure in such a way that it's creating barriers for certain demographics and communities. However, you know, to your point around voter exp- uh, suppression, for example. It's intended to to disenfranchise and control more of the Black community's vote. It is also harming people with disabilities and and other white people, frankly, who have a harder time with transportation, for example. So Mm -hmm. it actually is still hurting dominant cultures, but they don't see it that way. And so the way the language is positioned and who it's coming from to what audience for what impact, um, it's actually, there's a self-sabotage that happens. It's like where Heather McGee talks about the draining of the pool, you know? So, you know, back in the day,
1: everyone loses out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Everyone loses out. And I've seen more and more examples lately of, of, well, you know, if this person wants to do this and we don't want this person to do this, so then we're going to make up a new rule. We're going to come up with a new policy and, or we're going to amend a current one to make, mean that nobody can do this thing because this one person wants to do this and we don't want that person to do that. So we're just going to change the rules so nobody does it. So there's different versions of draining the pool that are alive and well today. So one of the things that I, I think people really don't really understand, like, when I started a job and I'm reading the code of conduct, maybe in my first couple of days at the job. <laughs> and then I never look at it again. <laughs> you know, the employee handbook or the code of conduct, et cetera, there's things in there and I don't even know anything about the company yet. I haven't started up, you know, I'm just sure. ramping and there's all the pressure of, you know, you know, whatever that whole time period when you're onboarding into a company. But one of the things that some of us, not all of us will do, but we'll sign the form to say that we read the employee (laughs) handbook or the code of conduct. But if we did, we don't look at it again. We just kind of operationalize operationalize ourselves within the unwritten rules of the culture, the workplace Mm -hmm. culture. So, and then if we do something and somebody actually wants to create a situation to retaliate or punish or or fire us or whatever it is they will that's when the employee handbook comes back into motion and like well you signed the document um so language becomes a weapon in those scenarios and it also is a way to control culture on a subjective basis and there's things within our employee handbook and our code of conducts that I'm reminded of it, uh, a work done, I don't know if you've read it, by the Stanford Innovation Review where it, it's uh, titled The Bias of Professionalism. Mm. And it talks about the policies and practices, the ha- employee handbook, what this subjective term professionalism is and how it shows up. My point in bringing all this up is that when language is used as a a weapon, basically referred to in a way that could be vague just enough to let a lot of people interpret it in different ways. So there's kind of a wild, wild west that, you know, is is at play here. This is happening in Florida around the book bans and how DeSantis is, is defending, saying, I never said that, but it's written in such a vague way that one person can complain about a book or a, a documentary on Ruby Bridges and then it's pulled. So the, the, the ambiguity of language, but also utilizing the code of conduct or whatever, in a way when you know that the employees aren't really looking at it, but then you can use it as a weapon. There's a real world and a real life impact to what is baked into these things. Can you speak to that a little bit or have some more examples? Yeah,
1: you mentioned the book ban. I'm just trying to think how else this shows up. I mean, part of it, to me, what it brings to mind is just that when things are vague like that, it would be helpful in the organizations that we work with, if you actually have a shared meaning across the organization of what you're talking Mm -hmm. about. When you say professionalism, when you say equity, when you say inclusion, when you say, like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What's an example? But I mean, just what it's bringing to mind too is that you do, when you join an organization, follow or fall fo- you know follow along with the way the behaviors that are modeled by the leaders, by the supervisors, by those um, in power. So, depending on who those people are and their belief systems, is is um, can create exclusion um, for. To those who think differently, who, have, um, who operate differently, who have a different background, who even have different opinions. So I'm just wondering if there's anything more specific y- you have in mind.
0: No, I think that that's great. I mean, we're going to be talking to somebody in another episode talking about the impact of stereotypes from the media, for example. Where we've had CEOs make comments of mm. that there is no connection. This is just entertainment. These are just stories. There's no real world impact to these stories, you That's- know, that we tell these fictional characters. And there's there's no bigger BS than that. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about <laughs> how how language and visuals have been actually used um, that has actually had real world impact as well. Big news, friends. We have found a way to duplicate the content we share. Now it'll be available everywhere all at once. You can now pre-order the DEI Communications Blueprint. (sighs) (laughs) This is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients all over the world. And by taking this video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain confidence, and shift DEI messages to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we threw in some more bonuses for those who pre-order ahead of our fall launch. So go to deicommunicationsblueprint.com that is DEICommunicationsblueprint.com to get started. So many of the folks that are listening are professional communicators, and they are setting the tone and the personality of what the language is within the the organizations from which we serve. Um, So can you talk about, some examples that you have found in the work of when you're looking for inequities and equities within the policies and, and any any other kind of uh, content that you review and you're looking for, that communicators can have an influence and start to have these conversations of being able to have a DEI lens on what the, what uh, they are putting out as communicators, but also what they're supporting when it comes to code of conduct or employee handbooks, policies, other practices, processes, etc. How can how can what does that DEI lens look like? What do we need to be looking out for in inequities within language?
1: I think um, it's a long process. So there's the education piece. I, I, I mean, I would I would list it as education empathy and humility but you have to build that in right not just write it down so education i'm thinking um you have to be curious and open learn and read so we talked a little i mean i've i've come ac- come across this right the controversy on we were talking about latinx or a pregnant person it's kind of a privilege to not have to understand those terms <laughs> or to just disagree um with terms and I think um, a good communicator would is someone who's curious and open to learn and read something that might not affect them directly, but that affects people in general. And empathy is learning what's actually at stake, right? I think you were mentioning like how language has an impact on people's lives. Um, with the term pregnant person or um, Latinx, right, learning what's actually at stake. So uh, even with pronouns, people have um, pushed back or with the term Latinx thinking um, it's vanity or people are trying or people are being, you know, um, not getting what's the point. And it's much deeper, right? We're talking about safety. Um, We're talking about inclusion and belonging so people can focus on what they're there to do so that they can work in peace so that they feel safe to go to work so that they feel safe to use your services. Um, They feel welcome at your institution, And what's behind it is the danger and risk, um, people's sense of safety, their ability to concentrate, the reality, right, that certain groups uh, face violence, harassment, um, physical danger, but also mental, you know, um, that all this contributes to, like, making it harder for them to just focus because they're feeling aggression. Um, And so thinking about I just think a lot about education, right? Like, there's experts on this stuff. We're not all experts, but we can tap into those resources. And then the empathy, um, thinking about what's more important, right? My convenience or your safety.
0: (laughs) Oh, oh, just pause right there. Say that again and break that down.
1: I was saying it's a privilege to not know or care about things that don't affect you, right? Because you're not in danger. Um, And if you don't have to learn the terms or if you don't have to learn what it means or why it's important to use a term that includes people, that acknowledges the humanity of people who are excluded. Right. What the importance, the power of that versus you're too lazy to get it right. (laughs) Right. And I think part of that is that we're all imperfect. We all make mistakes. We all mess up. So uh, humility is involved too, right? That you're probably going to mess up, <laughs> but your embarrassment can't be bigger, right? Than like to, so if you're so embarrassed, you can be like, oh, it never happened. I can keep messing up because it's more embarrassing to admit uh, when you mess up. For me, right? I feel nauseous when I let people
0: down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But shame, yeah, I experienced yeah. that. Yeah. But
1: imagine what the other person feels that felt harmed that's even worse. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's not their job to educate us. That's the problem, right? Because imagine like feeling harmed and then being like, actually, this is why it matters. Like, that's horrible. So it's kind of on us to, yeah, apologize, do better, learn and change. Right. And so it's okay to mess up, but don't let your ego (laughs) like take over um, the impact. Right. And so, just a lot of a lot of advice, you know, for people with privilege to use their privilege as allies. So if someone says something that is exclusionary, discriminatory, don't wait for a person from that group to bring it up. Like, that's a mm-hmm. lot of weight to carry. Step in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just have more examples. I think we were talking about our kids and there's, we're all imperfect. So I'll just say, like, I mess up a lot, too. Communicators are people too, right? So don't
0: expect perfection. (laughs) People first. Uh, Yeah, absolutely right.
1: So it's kind of like you have to be open to continuous improvement and not take it personally if you get it wrong, um, but take responsibility to do better. And I think, I mean, I don't know if this fits, but don't just think about the money. (laughs) Because I think some campaigns think about, oh, you're inclusive to reach more markets and blah, blah, blah. Um, that may not be true for, you know, with this beer controversy, but, um, (laughs) but, but just the, you know, it's more about, it's more at stake back to the part about empathy. Like what's the significance, right? Um, if you reproduce language that puts people at risk or questions people's humanity or excludes people, that's going to have an impact and it doesn't, you know, even if you can improve and get it right, but if you choose not to get it right, that doesn't look so good, um for your company and the harm that you can be causing inadvertently.
0: And it's not up to the other person to get over it or take a joke. Well, we can do a whole episode yeah. on, on all of this. Uh, yeah, I just really work. loved how you laid it down with your inconvenience is not more important than my safety. Yeah. And I, I just, I really love that point. And thank you for deconstructing it out and, and helping people hear that yeah, we were talking about our kids offline um, before we were recording and how you were. I won't tell your side of the story, but my side of the story is that I have a 12-year-old daughter who, uh, although she she is adopted, she's, she, uh, her birth family comes from Eastern Europe, Europe. uh, Europe. Uh, She has white skin, brown hair, et cetera. And so, we actually have conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, believe it or not. I mean, I I bought her, you know, the youth version of, uh, you know, how to be a young anti-racist, for example, she loves learning about history and presidents. And so I utilize that to talk about colonization and (laughs) the Holocaust and all kinds of things. So, cause she's interested in it. And when I misgender or I assign a gender, like if if we're driving and somebody cuts me off and I say, I can't believe he did that. Mm. I, you know, my default is he, when I can't identify a gender, I just go to he, right? And wonderful kid will say, you don't know if it's a he, you know, <laughs> you're right, you're absolutely right. And there's things that don't come to her attention, like, she'll say she'll talk about the word normal and then you know i i choose a time but that's one of those flag words i'm sure you have flag words that kind of make your ears perk a little bit that and like let's powwow you know those are kind of like those my those are my kind of you know kind of words and i have many of them but whenever i hear the word normal and and so i've had that conversation a couple of times with her and if i say it she will bring it to my attention. Like, so she's, mm, oh, wow. she's she's getting that this word normal doesn't really exist. And it, it's, it's existing to protect a certain structure and it's not making room for people um, for, to be who they are. You know, that there's some sort of standard uh, that people are failing to meet if they are not normal and what normal is. And we're, we're all supposed to just understand what that definition of normal is. So it's been an interesting conversation. What about you?
1: Oh my God, I love this because first of all, kids hear everything you say.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> My kid is three, okay? There's things I forgot we said that she reminded <laughs> us of when she was younger than that. So I think for me, what happened is um, she has not internalized stereotypes, but she's getting there. Right, mm-hmm. and so it's a long story, but basically we were in Mexico, and my mom, my mom lives in Mexico, and she doesn't have screens on her windows, and so the mosquitoes. You know, when we stayed with her, we got bit by mosquitoes, and then from there it got summarized into there's mosquitoes in Mexico, <laughs> right? And Mexico's weird because they have mosquitoes, right? And so she was telling me the other day that at school, because she knows she's Mexican, but she's not sure how much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or what I it what means, means yeah. She's, or where
1: Mexico is so I had to buy her a globe but um she made the point like I'm 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 what'd she say I'm Mexican I'm normal and I'm Mexican or something like that sometimes I'm normal sometimes I'm Mexican that's <laughs> like actually Mexican is normal um everything's normal right white brown black Asian every Mexican is normal and she said, yeah, I love Mexico. Grandma lives there, but they're mosquitoes. It's weird, right? It's a little weird. Mm. It's like, no, there's mosquitoes here, too. We just have screens, you know?
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: yeah. and then I told her, I'm Mexican, so it's, it's kind of like not nice to say that anyone's weird, right? But that was a lot for her to handle. She started crying because she thought she had offended me you know what i mean so it's like deep this is deep stuff and i told her you didn't know you're just trying to figure out how this all works where these places even are so i mean the lesson there is just like be gentle but um kids are curious and so we we need to educate ourselves to be able to translate to them like what that means but i do think it's good um to talk about race in uh in an informed way um and there's a book what I read before I had kids called Nurture Shock. I think that's what it's called. Hmm. That talks about, you talk to, to kids about everything, right? Disability, everything, yes. right? So that everything's normal, actually. Yes. And they don't embarrass you in public one day saying, look, they're so, you know, like asking you. And if they do ask you, you respond naturally. You don't tell them, shh, shh, you know, don't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm still learning. I'm just saying, because sometimes I know how to respond to adults, but not children. I mean, what do you do when a kid is racist and their parents not there? You know, I'm still learning how to figure that out Um, because my initial reaction is like, get my kid away from that kid, right? Like you don't need to be around but she'll be around it a lot actually on her own. So I'm not there yet, but yeah, I mean, part of it is normalizing everything and then being age appropriate, right? And that they don't mean harm, they're curious. But if you say stuff that's problematic, they're gonna repeat it, so
0: now we've heard um more often especially since the summer of 2020 about the black and african american community having the talk um the race conversation i was raised in a very white household even though i have native american heritage that wasn't brought into the conversation it was just kind of we didn't really talk about race and ethnicity right because we're normal like we were just talking about right um, so we never had those conversations. So we don't have, I don't have, I didn't grow up with the skills to name myself, identify myself, see my place in the world. That's part of the, the, uh, mentality of the obliviousness. That's part of, part of why it works, et cetera. In, in the community from which you were raised, are those, those kinds of conversations while you're a kid?
1: I think that it's different. Um, just on two dimensions. So what I hear about the talk is about safety, right? What do you do when you encounter a police officer to stay alive, right? Because it might go wrong. Um, And so I can see that happening if you're an immigrant, right? How to navigate um, encounters with immigration. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is unspoken. You just know. Don't mess up, or don't call attention to yourself, or don't. You know, I was lucky enough to have legal status, but even you, you're very deferential. You, you know, to immigration, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that, or to services that can report you to immigration and like jeopardize your family. I mean, I think it just shows up differently if if there's an acknowledgement of discrimination or one's place on the economic ladder that you don't talk back you know, um, or speak up. So it just shows up in other ways, I think, like in in the workforce. And especially I see that as a problem for first generation professionals who don't know how to um, advocate for themselves, manage up or disagree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's how it shows up for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'll just say the problem is that within the Latino community, there's a lot of racism towards Blacks and towards Indigenous people. So I can't guarantee that there's so I'll just say there's that third element and classism, right? Where in mm-hmm. Mexico, I'll tell you, the police is not held in high regard, even the military, because it seemed like a working class occupation. And so I don't I don't wanna say that it's whiteness, but it's that if you have enough money you can do whatever you want. And so there's not this fear of you're gonna lose your life. Um just because there's so much privilege, you know, among middle-class Latinos. And then there's just a lot of racism towards, um, to distinguish themselves from people who are seen to have a worse -hmm. situation. So it, it just shows up like in a lot of different ways.
0: And I can attest that when I came out, then the conversations with my parents was about safety. And my mom even asked me like, okay, okay. Uh, can you tell nobody? Because I'm really worried about your safety. Like, you know, so she wanted to take advantage of my ability to pass, if you will. Um, And that was really, really interesting. And I saw the love that she was trying to share with me on that. Um, And unlike my color of my skin that is seen, however, the world sees it, and it's not my choice, it's out of my hands. Um, as if I were you know I had more melanin in my skin uh, than I do, I had a choice around mm. being out, if you will. There are certain situations where I do use that privilege, but in most situations, I do not uh, I, I I don't take advantage of that privilege, uh, but however, I also have height privilege, I have deep voice privilege. <laughs> I have athletic shape privilege, you know, so I take advantage of that. It's like, it's not smart to try to do anything to me, right? Or say anything to me. And, but I, I also, that's also white woman privilege that I am leveraging as well. So if I was a transgender person of color who was shorter, for example, or different body shape, et cetera, I would not have these kinds of privileges and it would be less, Less of it would be more out of my hands, but I did have that safety conversation with my parents when it came to my sexual orientation. So I appreciate yeah. you bringing up that point, and um, because there are certain work environments or client environments where I still, to this point, to, to, at this age, I still don't come out everywhere I go uh, because of safety. I will be traveling to Florida soon. Equality Florida has issued a travel advisory. For the entire state of of florida for anyone who is lgbtq saying it is not safe to travel here certainly in certain pockets of florida a travel advisory has been issued and i'm going to florida and i will be uh i have the option you know to be out or not or wear the t-shirts that i have or not with the pride flag and, I uh, it's a, it's a, it's a safety situation, but there's also a sense of pride and solidarity and allyship and, and All right. wanting people to know that I am here and, um, I see them, but there are people that don't have the choices and the privilege and the options like I do. And I recognize that, which motivates me more to be out, uh, to help with the stereotypes, um, that can be more disproportionately harmful to people who can't necessarily hide as well as I can. Uh, so just in our last couple of minutes here, Maria, what does, you know, tying everything that we talked about, the interpersonal, the, you know, the intrapersonal communication, as well as the reviewing of our language that builds the nuts and bolts and functions and the infrastructures of our businesses and our policies, our practices, our processes, et cetera, what does it look like, in your opinion, to communicate like we give a damn?
1: Part of me wants to say you can't have assumptions about what's normal, right? And which itself requires a growth mindset, right? Because how do you get it right? You, might, you, you won't get it right the first time. So I think partly is continue, being open to continuous improvement, uh, being open to feedback, and um, telling people what you're doing with that feedback. I don't know, paying people, you know, if you do focus groups or if people have a role in making your materials more inclusive, paying for that knowledge, right? But also building a capacity, so not relying on certain groups to point out the flaws and recognizing the power dynamics inherent in that if you're asking someone for feedback where you have more power and they don't feel comfortable actually telling you what they think to improve mm. the mm-hmm. language. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I think, When I say normative, don't don't assume anything is normative. I mean, even the one thing I left out of the question you asked me about the the talk, I mean, um, if you just look at the data, right, acknowledging reality is acknowledging the reality of inequities. And so that's why certain language is not going to land for some people. something we didn't talk about is exclusion of people who are formerly incarcerated right i I see a lot of advances in um programs uh to address that um discrimination but in popular culture there's still jokes right about um what it is to be a prisoner even my three-year-old right it's like oh a bandit has stripes so very young at two years old um people are learning like what's and they try kids try to like simplify good bad is that good or a bad person Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's not how it is some people are denied opportunities right and just about the talk like latino men right face enormous um scrutiny and they have to um control their emotions and so like the point about privilege that you were speaking um being able to raise us to make a scene to advocate for yourself to defend yourself um requires privilege that you won't be um you won't face a uh, retribution for that. Right. So anyway, just in terms of what's normative expanding, what we think is normative and trying to go back to things that are still, that are stereotypes. When you think about Disney movies that now have the disclaimer, this was offensive then it's offensive now. Okay. Like relook at things that for a long time have seemed okay because things change. and <laughs> um, and just in terms of history, you know, Hard won rights can be lost. Right. Mm-hmm. And so look at the ways in which people are trying to create new exclusion, really, how do you say, it, very creatively, so that you can't tell. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, and there's a book um, by um, I, Ian Haney Lopez called Dog Whistle Politics. I don't have the whole title, but you know things like "Make America Great Again." What does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You don't say anything, but you say a lot. You're saying go back to a time when people didn't have rights, when people couldn't vote, can go to school. Yeah. So just um, sometimes when we use language that seems just general, the people enforcing it show you who's included in that normal, right?
0: I used to teach at, uh, in person. I still teach online at San Jose State University in California. And one of the classes I used to teach is media theory and research. One of the things that we would do as a class is that we would watch news stories, for example. And we would, and there's a lot, too, and I'm only going to mention one slice of what we would pay attention to to deconstruct it. But one of the things I would point the students' attention to, and it's something I test myself my own media criticism, you know, critical thinking of media, et cetera, is to look at, okay, and I've made my own documentaries. So I know the conventions, I, you know, this, this is what one does. As a director, as a writer, you're telling the, the audience where to look, where what you want emphasized, right? Uh, everything in the frame is a character to support the story, that has a certain theme to it. Sometimes, right. life lessons, etc., mirroring life, and sometimes not, etc. But it's very intentional to draw the eye and lead the audience in a certain direction. We are showing you what we want you to see. So there's there's elements that are emphasized, but there's also elements that are deemphasized. What is being left out? Who? is being left out why which circling back to what you said at the beginning as as far as the programs that you evaluate like why are we doing this program and what is the effect of it they may have an intention but it may have a different impact so this idea of looking at our language and seeing what we are emphasizing who we are emphasizing and then why whether it's intentional or not, what are we de-emphasizing? Who are we silencing? Who are we, who are we leaving out? Right. And that's part of having that DEI lens on our work on a regular basis. Maria, thank you so much for bringing your expertise, your research and dissertation work uh, to, and your personal life and talking about your kid. <laughs> you know, I just love the range of the conversation that we just had. How can people stay in touch with you?
1: I have a blog, uh, MariaGamboa.com, and I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram. So yeah, add me, feel free to read what I write. It's a bunch of random stuff, but all with this lens, <laughs> you know, because I deconstruct PBS shows, I deconstruct, you know, higher ed programs. So it's just whatever I see with that lens.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So people can can learn and kind of learn off of your example of what you're seeing that's emphasized and what's being left out and de-emphasized. That's awesome. Thank you. I look forward to subscribing myself. (laughs) Thank you for being here, Maria. It was so great to have you here. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Okay. So what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicatelikeyougiveadamthepodcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening and until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.